I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. An important Canadian life is given a new look with the release of a memoir, Flora, A Woman in a Man's World, written by Flora MacDonald and Jeffrey Stevens. The book looks at the life and times of a trailblazing politician, humanitarian, and adventurer. MacDonald, who died at the age of 89 in 2015, had uh, completed part of the manuscript with Mr. Stevens, who joins me now. It was up to Jeff to finish it, and he has done so in a most thoughtful, elegant way, not losing MacDonald's voice in the process, capturing her voice through various sources and material. The book looks at MacDonald's remarkable life from her childhood in Cape Breton to her early adventurous travels in Europe and through North America to her years in the back room of the Progressive Conservative Party. She talks candidly about John Diefenbaker, who was the leader of the party at the time, and uh, how uh, he subsequently had her fired. We follow MacDonald as she's elected a member of Parliament in 1972 through uh, her fabled run for the Tory party's leadership in 1976 and her appointment as the first female Minister of External Affairs in 1979 as part of the short-lived Joe Clark government. We see the male chauvinism and sexism that MacDonald encounters as well as a different kind of politics then as now. And we are reminded in the book of MacDonald's remarkable role in two files that dominate her time as Foreign Affairs Minister, the bringing in of the 60,000 Vietnamese refugees to Canada, the so-called boat people, and the Canadian caper, where six American hostages were rescued in Tehran, dramatized uh, elsewhere, like in the film Argo. Afghanistan also plays a big part in MacDonald's life. It's a country that fascinated her and that she traveled to many times in her post-political career as a tireless advocate for women's rights. Jeffrey Stevens is a political columnist, former managing editor of the Globe and Mail and Maclean's. He is the author of Stanfield, a biography of Robert Stanfield, as well as The Player, The Life and Times of Dalton Kemp. He also co-wrote books with uh, John Crosby and John Lashinter, including Leaders and Lesser Mortals. This new book is published by McGill Queen's University Press. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Jeffrey Stevens. Mr. Stevens, good morning. Oh, good, good morning, Joe. How are you? Pretty good yourself. It's fine. I um, enjoyed this book a great deal, and I'm, I was uh, really looking forward to chatting because I've been reading you over the years. Um, in terms of, of um, how this book came about, um, I understand that it was two-thirds done when, when Flora McDonald died in 2015. Um, how did you, you, you work together, say, up until the time she died? Well, it started uh, basically I approached her... Uh, with the idea of doing a, just writing her biography uh, because I felt that she had done many things and achieved some important things in, the, in her career. I mean, I, I knew her political career. I didn't know anything about her, her early days in Cape Breton, and I didn't know anything about what she had been doing after politics. But I knew the political part. And I thought, well, you know, there's a, there's a book in there. Nobody, nobody's done it. Uh, so I went to, I went to see her and said, look, you know, how, how, be, how, how would it be if I uh, did your did a biography and we talked about it and she didn't you know, she said oh, I don't have time for that I, I got, I'm really busy and, and, and you know nobody's going to be interested nobody's going to care I said well I think we'll care and if you've got time and we agreed to start on it and we got going on it and uh, I was writing some chapters and, uh, and when we started talking about it I said we agreed that it would it would read better and be more interesting if it were in her her voice and told in the first person mm. as a uh, memoir rather than as, as sort of a third person more distant uh, 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 biography. So that's what we did, and we started that and uh, and worked on it uh, around her schedule. And a lot of that time, uh, she was 
she was just getting deeply involved in Afghanistan at mm-hmm. that point, and she was traveling. She was there often, and when she wasn't in Afghanistan, she was uh, traveling across Canada making speeches and trying to raise money uh, for her teaching institute, which is called uh, uh, um, Future, sorry, Future Generations Canada, the name of Future Generations Canada, which she sort of spun off from uh-huh. Future Generations International. Um, and uh, she was a ch- she founded the Canadian version. She was the chairman or chairperson of the of the American one as well. And uh, she spent a lot of time trying to raise money to uh, to support these charitable organizations. And uh, so uh, we worked around it. But uh, then uh, she got ill. She got weaker. She got older, and it was harder. And uh, and then she died. And we were about two thirds finished on the manuscript. Yeah. So, so that's where we got to. Yeah. So that was 2015. She was 89 years old. Um, so, died, yeah. yeah, so how did you, you finish the book say, uh, from then yeah. on? Well, what I did was uh, with, uh, with the great encouragement of Linda Grusin, uh, Sir Grusin, who was uh, mm-hmm. Flora's uh, executor and her niece, um, they wanted, the family wanted to get the book out. And I said, sure, well, let's, let's see what we can do. Um, and what I did was I went back to uh, the interview transcripts that I had done with her because in the course of talking about her, her early days, for example, we would flip forward and talk about the later days of what she'd done after politics and what she'd done in Africa or Asia or in Afghanistan. Uh, so I had some of that there. I didn't have a, a proper sense of what she had done when and why, and what in, individual uh, uh, projects that she'd undertaken, but I had a, a general sense of it. And, and uh, so I used some of that. Uh, I went back to some of the speeches she'd made when she's out trying to raise money for her groups. Uh, and I, I read her letters, correspondence, there's a fair bit of it actually in the National Archives in, in Ottawa, uh-huh. and I interviewed a number of people that she'd worked with, and I, I kept, kept saying to them, um, you know, or you, you were talking to Flora about uh, this visit to that refugee camp in Africa. Now, what exactly, how exactly did she say it? What were her words? And I would say, well, here's what she said. And I got some, uh, some of that sense, and I was able to put it together. And I think uh, um, I think I, ke- I kept her... Uh, her voice consistent through the through the book. The thing that strikes me um, in, in um, before and after her political career, um, it's a life that, that's full of adventure, uh, a yep. lot of travel. Um, you, you open the book with with um, Afghanistan and, and how scary um, yep. some of those moments were. It's, a, it's very exciting to read, and then um, even the, the the travels in her youth, going to Europe and, and the United States. I mean, there's a funny moment where. Um, She's short on cash with her traveling companion, and um, they, they realize that in the States you could make money um, by donating blood. Right. But I guess they misread or, or they, they, they didn't realize where they were going, and then they ended up losing a pint of blood. The train uh, got and nothing in return. <laughs> <laughs> you be laughing out loud, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what um, the sense of adventure? This 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 idea of traveling, seeing the world. Where that's that's obviously from an early age. Where does that come from, though? I think it came from uh, from her background in in Cape Breton, um, her uh, ancestors who came over uh, uh, from uh, Scotland after the high, after the Highland clearances. Uh, uh, her grandfather, uh, who was a ship's captain, uh, he and his wife sailed uh, sailed the world in his schooner. He had three of his uh, three of his children were were born uh, on board. Before mm. his father was the only one that wasn't born, born on board. Uh, so there was that, and uh, she uh, had that sense from the beginning. She loved to travel, uh, and she had a certain recklessness uh, about her. She would go into fairly risky uh, situations yeah. and uh, do that. Um, 
I mean, I had a, one person who read the book uh, uh, sent me an email and said, you know, she said, I got this book. Uh, and I sat down to read it, and I said, well, it's another, here we go, another boring political <laughs> biography. Uh, I'll just have to fight my way through it. And she said, she got in the first chapter, and she said, it's not a political biography. It's an adventure story. Yeah, what yeah. well, it is, it is, in good part, an adventure story. And that's what I wanted it to be, and that's the way I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it the, the Scottish heritage, I mean, that's something that... that um she uh, calls upon, uh, you know, throughout her life. It's yeah. such a part of her identity. Um, yeah. In terms of um, even the name Flora MacDonald, I mean, that has, you know, historical Named connotation. Named after the great Flora yeah. MacDonald, who was the uh, Scottish heroine who spirited uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie away and saved his life by uh, getting him off to the Isle of Skye uh, following the, uh, the Battle of... Uh, 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 People can people can look it up. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's the uh, it's the the great battle where the the British uh, uh, defeated the Scots and uh, basically right. uh, uh, took over and uh, largely replaced the uh, Scots uh, cattle with the English sheep. Uh, but uh, that's the, the battle of um, uh, sorry. Yeah, no people. Yeah, head. people can look it up. But but yeah. the, the fascinating thing is, you know, my parents are Filipino, and mm-hmm. um, in in her career as as um, I was going to say Foreign Secretary. What did they call it? Uh, external uh, Affairs well, it's Secretary, called right? External Affairs Minister. Yeah, it's now called Foreign Minister. Yeah. They changed the title in, in the 70s. Yeah, so she was, she was instrumental in, in, in the, 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 the program that, that helped the boat people. Um, yeah. well, it, she, they, she, yeah. got, she persuaded the, the, uh, the government uh, to, to uh, bring in uh, 30,000 uh, uh, Vietnamese boat people, yeah. association it, boat people, and then they were increased the numbers to 60,000. Yeah. It's such a Canadian story. I mean, people coming to this country, wherever they come from in the world, can um, see an example of, of, of someone like, like Flora MacDonald who, um, you know, can, can retain that sort of ethnic heritage, if you will. Yeah, she did. And, and uh, it, it was amazing the way that people did come forward and, and uh, agreed to sponsor uh, yeah. some of these refugees. And, and the deal that Flora worked out uh, was that uh, every refugee... Uh, Sponsor, they would pay half the cost, and the spon- mm-hmm. sponsor would pay half, and uh, and uh, the the uh, immigrant uh, would settle uh, wherever uh, the sponsor happened to be, and uh, which is why you now have uh, you know, a fair South Asian population in uh, in northern areas, even in the uh, Northwest Territories and Yukon. Indeed, indeed, yeah, it, it was fascinating to read in the book that um, when that happened, um, in uh, just as as, as they. Uh, t- the, the Clark government was formed or was, was elected in 1979. I guess the Trudeau government, the previous Trudeau government, had given a commitment of 5,000, and That's then right. it increases in yeah. her time as as, as uh, the minister, right? Yeah, they they increased it f- first to 50,000, and then to 60, and then it it came in at about 80. And uh, their later estimates to say probably altogether, one way or another, about 100,000 came yeah. in. Canada had accepted more uh, South Asian refugees per capita than any country in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one reason why Canada was awarded the Nansen Medal for, uh, by the United Nations for that, uh, for that effort. Yeah. Did, did she have an idea uh, in her early years what she wanted to do with her life? Because it, it seems improbable that, that um, someone uh, of her, say, uh, background, uh, someone of her um, gender even, uh, or her generation would end up in a career that she ended up with. Yeah, no, she, uh, I don't think she had a, any uh, career destinations particularly. She knew she was not really a secretary and did not intend to be one. 
she knew she had no intention of getting married and settled down and having a family. She wanted to get out. She wanted to do things. She wanted to make a contribution. Uh, and she wanted to travel. And because she wanted to travel, she applied for a job in the Department of External Affairs, thinking she might get posted abroad and that would be good. Mm-hmm. But uh, the inter- you know, it's one of those epiphany moments. She was got to Ottawa for, to go to her, her interview at External Affairs, and she was walking along the street in downtown Ottawa, just south of Parliament Hill, and came across this funny old building called Bracken House, which was the conservative headquarters. And she had time to kill, so she wandered in, and she said, I thought I'd go in and tell them there's another conservative in town. <laughs> she walked in there, and they hired her on the spot. Uh, she became secretary to the national director, and she very soon was running the place herself because she was better than any of them, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but they would never make her national director because she was a woman. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. she, uh, she was there for nine years uh, before uh, Diefenbaker had her fired, and, uh, and uh, she went off uh, on a different direction and, uh, and uh, became a, uh, an elected official of the Conservative Party as they got rid of uh, Diefenbaker, uh, was instrumental in getting Bob Stanfield to run for leadership, worked in his campaign, got herself elected in Kingston in 1972 as the only woman uh-huh. out of a 102-member Conservative caucus, only one woman, uh, and she did that, and uh, she uh, ran for leadership the 76 uh, because she said she thought she was, all the other candidates, the men, were pretty right-wing uh-huh. in her taste, and she thought she was better, probably, than they were, yeah. so she ran, and uh, she didn't win, Joe Clark did, but that was that was her second choice as a candidate, and, uh, and then Clark, uh, three years later, becomes prime minister, and he makes her uh, minister of foreign affairs or external affairs, and he said, because... Uh, because you know, she'd been everywhere, she knew everything, and uh, she was, frankly, better informed than uh, anybody else that he had. Yeah. How, uh, you mentioned Diefenbaker a moment ago. Um, how did she view Diefenbaker? I mean, the relationship is quite fascinating to chart in, in the course of the book. Um, there's obviously the, the, the last meeting that they had um, when she's uh, sworn in as external affairs <laughs> minister. Um, but... Uh, when she was at Conservative Party headquarters, what, um, how, how did she view him? Well, she uh, she came into headquarters about the time that Diefenbaker was winning his first uh, election. Uh, uh, that was in 1957. Mm-hmm. We elected a minority government, and she uh, was working at headquarters, and she was quite excited then, and she was all you know, very much a Diefenbaker person, and was through the <coughs> excuse me the 1958 election when he got a huge majority. But she said, as he saw him more in action, and during that period when he was a big majority, she saw him grow more isolated, uh, less willing to stop and meet people and talk to them, uh, and ex- he sort of developed a, almost an emperor complex. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, he, he alone had the answer to all issues and all problems, and, uh, and she became alienated from him. Um, she wasn't in revolt, but uh, she got increasingly concerned, and uh, it got worse. And Stephen Baker got the sense that she was not... Yeah, entirely on board, and you really can't, I guess, have somebody running your headquarters who was, uh, who was not uh, entirely on board. <laughs> and so uh, he uh, ordered, he arranged to have her fired, and the national director came down and fired her. And that's one of the dramatic moments when he fired her, and, uh, and she basically stood up to him and uh, and uh, and went off and uh, and ended up uh, helping Dalton Camp organize the campaign to get rid of Dean Baker. That's a great moment in the book where where she talks about, um, you know, how the patronizing. Uh, people of that generation were and and as he fires her he says if you want to scream or cry go ahead mm-hmm. and what was her response she said what me cry you don't know me you know? <laughs> she was angry yeah she yelled at him and she was really mad and she said you're making a terrible mistake and uh, and, uh, and he said well i'm going to come i'm going to go off for dinner now with my family and i'll come back at eight o'clock and we can talk some more about this well, she wasn't going to 
hang around. She waited until he left, and she packed up her stuff, and she managed to take with her the party membership list, uh, which she then, over the ensuing months, wrote to every member of the party across the country, uh, saying she so, so didn't, didn't blame anybody. She said, I'm so sorry, I'm not there anymore. And uh, she got a lot of sympathy back. And when she started to you know, organize her own political career, she had a sort of a political base already yeah. built. Indeed. Um, it's quite interesting when she did that. Yeah. So she she allies herself with Dalton Kemp during yeah. this time. Um, what, what was their personal relations like, uh, relationship like? Did they, did they like each other, I guess? Did, was it oh, warm? Uh, yes, they did. Uh, they, they got along well, and they trusted each other. But uh, uh, Dalton, uh, always, was old, old school, Dalton always treated her as a, uh, she's a female, and uh-huh. females did certain things. And uh, and uh, when he had a speech to make, uh, he expected her to type it, um, um. and and she did. And he, uh, and Dalton is one of these uh, is a nocturnal person. I mean, he basically the sun is down and the uh, and the moon is coming up before he sort of gets down to work. So he writes his speeches deep into the night, and so Flora would have to stay up late and then type the thing so he'd have it first thing in the morning. And uh, and that was her role. I mean, she was respected, she was trusted, uh, but she wasn't given any authority. Was Camp like that even up to the end? Um, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, he didn't change uh, that much. Uh, he, uh, uh, he, uh, yeah, he became more accommodating as he got older and and sicker. And after he had his heart transplant, he was uh, uh, more amenable to uh, things. He wasn't. He was never anti-female. He just felt that he had a different role in politics. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the the. Um the, the dramatic scene at, at the, the swearing-in of the, the Clark government, and, and Diefenbaker um, sees her there, or I guess she she comes up to him, and, and she, yeah. uh, you know... He, well, they, they they were at the swearing-in of the Clark government. Diefenbaker was not was not part of that cabinet, but he was mm-hmm. there as former prime minister, um, and uh, he uh, he and Flora had not spoken in 13 years at that point. Right. And as they're coming out, Flora recalls that she had been there the day that Diefenbaker and his first government were sworn in in 1957. And she said, I remember this day so well 12 years ago, sir, and, a, uh, and how what a wonderful, sunny day it was. And he looked at her and he said, you, you, foreign minister, never. You, know, you could have made you postmaster general, <laughs> but, not, but not foreign minister. Yeah. And they walked away. Um, and they never spoke again, and a couple of months later he was dead. Yeah. You, you tell the story in the book about the, the, the bomb threat yeah. at, at his funeral, which I'd never heard of, uh, heard, uh, of before. Um, how do you find something like that? Uh, from Flora. I see. Because she was sitting there right behind uh, Joe Clark. Uh, Joe Clark was sitting beside the... Uh, the, uh, uh, no, the governor general was on the left hand side of the church, and Joe Clark was on the right side in the front row pew. And the floor was directly behind him uh, in the second pew, and so, she watched the whole thing. Yeah, so the RCMP officer, I guess, goes up to the prime minister and says, um, there's a bomb threat, and what was Clark's <laughs> response? Well, Clark, as Flora said, that Joe Clark, was, it was so typical of him, he said, what are my options? Yeah. <laughs> it was, the guy said, well, you have a choice. Um, we can take it seriously as a bomb threat, and you can clear clear the church. Uh Everybody will have to get out uh, while we search the church, or we can uh, treat it as a hoax and uh, and go ahead. And uh, Clark said, "Looked." Of course, Clark looked around the whole church and looked back at the guy and said, "No, there's only one person in this church who wants all of these people dead, and he's lying in that coffin. Let's go on with the service." <laughs> um, 
Clark and, and uh, McDonald's relationship. What was that like? I, I, I was surprised when I when I read the book that um, I guess he had initially supported her, and then he go, goes off in 1976 to, to run his own campaign. Yeah, he went to the for his first uh, organization meeting, which was she held in her apartment in Ottawa, and he was there with a bunch of other people, David McDonald and uh, and uh, Mike Gordon Fairweather, and all a bunch of the Red Tories, uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, I guess he uh, took a look at it, and, and he probably did the same assessment that Flora did. Was that the, none of the other candidates, all male, uh, all male, were were really suitable. They were far too right wing. They were either very right wing or they were Diefenbaker loyalists. Mm-hmm. And that uh, there's no reason why he uh, couldn't run, and he did. And uh, he ran third on the first ballot, and Flora was sixth. And Flora threw her support to him, and I thought, there was never. A, a specific agreement, but it was understood um, that, she, that the one who p- was lowest in the first ballot would go to the other one, uh, and that was basically brokered or organized through Lowell Murray, uh-huh. who uh, was a great friend of Flores and of Joe Clark's, and, and uh, later became a cabinet minister and uh, uh, under Mulroney and uh, a senator. Yeah. So you, you were covering her then for the Globe and Mail, and yeah. uh, in your in your uh, journalism of the day, you you said that. Um, that, that her campaign was short on specifics, and and um, it, it's funny to read in the book how she she takes a shot at you even, right? She said, "Well, yeah, she and she did at the time." And she, I mean, I, we were covering a campaign like that. I mean, you get the reaction right away from the person <laughs> you're writing about, and uh, and uh, no, she uh, she thought that she didn't. She did not disagree. I mean, she was short on specifics, but she said, "Oh, they're all short on specifics. Why do you single me out?" Well. Um, you know, uh, I, what I said wasn't critical. I just said that you know she she needed to develop some, some specifics, and she did uh, as the campaign went on. But uh, she was uh, she didn't campaign on specific policies. She campaigned as a uh, basically as a uh, well qualified uh, candidate uh, who knew the party better than anybody else, who understood the country probably better than the others because of all of her travel. Uh, and uh, it was an opportunity for the party to take that big step and and and, and have a woman leader, and uh, there and there were lots you know, there were more women voters than there are men voters, and it made some sense. So, so yeah. she, she campaigned that way. Uh, she said she wasn't uh, running as a woman candidate; she was running as a qualified candidate, and uh, and that's what she did. She didn't play up uh, her gender, uh, but it was obviously it was very much there the whole campaign. And it's a very grassroots campaign, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, she uh, didn't. I mean, Brian Mulroney flew around in a chartered jet, which he was loaned by uh, by the Power Corporation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he spent ten thousand dollars to hire a singer to sing to, for the delegates at the convention. Uh, Flora had no money, basically, uh, uh, and uh, but they they got a, she got, they started a campaign called A Dollar for Flora. That was to happen because she was uh, talking to some of her workers in the campaign, and she put her hand in her pocket and found it was full of dollar bills, which people had stuffed in her pocket when she had been at some things, and they stick a dollar in her pocket. So they started this campaign, had a dollar for Flora, and it raised a bunch of money. Yeah. Uh, and then they escalated that uh, to five dollars for Flora among the wealthier uh, supporters of the party, and uh, and that basically uh, paid for her campaign. But it was this, uh, yeah, maybe it was twelve, thirteen thousand dollars. I think was her total campaign budget uh, in those days, which yeah. is, uh, you know, not much more than Mulroney spent for the one singer for the one event. Jeanette Renault, yeah. Jeanette uh, Renault, she was very good. I yeah. But the most dramatic moment of the entire convention was uh, Flora's entrance on the night when the mm. candidates were speaking, when she was piped in by uh, all, what was it, 49 pipers or something, which, uh, all volunteers that came in and, uh, and piped her up to, up to the 
up to the podium playing um, uh, Isle, Isle, the Isle of Sky, Road to the Road to Sky, and, uh-huh. they piped, and then they piped themselves out to doing a part of Mary. Uh, and uh, it was electrifying uh, there. I mean, I don't watch like bagpipes, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I tell you, your hair stands up on your neck when you, you hear that in the, in, the, in the auditorium, and everybody just did silence except for that. And, yeah. and she spoke. So it, was, it, was, it was really it was a very, very powerful moment. So people can watch the, uh, the documentary that Peter Raymond did, uh, yeah. Flora Scenes uh, of a Leadership Convention. That, that, that's on the NFB uh, website, and if you have, like I do, the NFB app on your TV, uh, which I did uh, the other day, r- watched it again for the uh, umpteenth time, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, insight into to how politics was then and then how to run an old-style leadership campaign. So she goes yeah. into that convention. Um, did she think she would win, or, or what was the projection, say? Yes, she thought she could win. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, not all of her supporters thought she could, but they thought she'd make a, a pretty good showing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, she had a lot of people uh, supporting her. She had a lot of uh, uh, delegates wearing Flora badges, uh, which I've got one on my dining room table at the moment. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they, they did a count of the number of people going into the polls uh, wearing the Flora badges, um, and it was 350-odd, uh, roughly. Uh, and uh, compared to that, the number of votes came out, which were about 214. And uh, something had happened... Uh, in the polling booth, that the people who were wearing these badges and supposedly supporting Flora, in yeah. fact, didn't. And, uh, and uh, everybody said, well, men wouldn't support a woman. Uh, male conservatives were not going to have a woman leader. And Flora disagreed with that. Uh, she thought it was the women yeah. who, who turned, turned on her because they just they thought she was great. They thought it was wonderful that she was running. They wished her well, but they really couldn't bring themselves to, to vote for a, a woman, woman leader. They'd been voting... That's sort of the way their husbands voted all those years, vote for a man, and, and that's what they did. That was her analysis. Yeah, so the the, the Flora syndrome, as it was called, um, yeah. was born then. How, how did she take being saddled with that? Uh, well, she took it very badly, certainly yeah. at, at the time. I mean, she was devastated. And I, I was talking to Joe Clark uh, recently, and, uh, and he said he had not realized until he read the book how badly Flora had been hurt uh, by the result of that convention. And... Uh, I said, he said, he, he said, oh, he said, I know I was, uh, I was sort of thinking about my own victory. I didn't realize uh, how how much how much this had devastated her, and, yeah. and it has. But uh, he, uh, uh, she, uh, she shook it off, and uh, uh, she can sort of, towards the end, was able to make light of the whole thing of the Flora syndrome. And she said, well, you know, the next sufferer from the, of the Flora syndrome was Michael Wilson when he right. ran for the leadership and didn't get the vote that he expected. And so, uh, that's uh, that's true. So. It, Flora syndrome is not uh, exclusive uh, uh, to women candidates. Yeah, we saw it in in, in California with um, whose name now I forget the, the the mayor at the time of Los yeah. Angeles who ran for governor, and then uh, there was talk about that as well with regards to race and Barack Obama in twenty oh eight. People wondering, yeah. you know, supporting Obama, but not really, maybe. They liked the idea of having yeah. uh, Obama running. They thought he was, uh, if they're going to have a black candidate, this was a good one, and that yeah. wouldn't be a bad thing. But no, they're not ready to, ready to vote for him. Yeah. She, she's honest in the book about Mulroney and Clark. Um, she, was, she was close to Clark, but not really to Mulroney. Uh, she said that Mulroney had the tendency to overdo things, especially when it came to booze. I guess he was drinking then, wasn't he? Uh, he certainly was. And, and after the uh, convention in 76, uh, when he didn't win, he was heavily into the booze. Cause I, uh, as a reporter or a columnist at that time in Ottawa, I, I used to get calls from him uh, uh, in the afternoons when he'd be calling from a bar, usually at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, uh, 
quite in his cups, and he would rant a bit about why did they, why Joe Clark, why would they choose him? He's so inferior. He never even, he couldn't even graduate from law school. Mm. Sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, he was a uh, very, he was very bitter about that, and, and bitter at Flora for not supporting him. Uh, after she dropped out and she went to Clark and not to him. Yeah, there's a scene where he confronts her about that, right? Yeah, in a restaurant in Montreal after, later on. And, uh, yeah, he did. And, uh, I mean, I, I could not get Flora to agree to let me say what really happened, but uh-huh. I came close. I mean, what really happened was he was uh, he was drunk and he was re- ready to punch her in the nose. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Tom Sloan, uh, was her, had been her one of her assistants and uh, Tom I know what I do. He said, "No, he was a, a big guy, and he's bigger than Mulroney." And he just sort of stood up and uh, and uh, basically told Mulroney that if he wanted to hit somebody, he could hit him, and he uh, would, would regret that. And, uh, and Mulroney calmed down and went back to his table. But uh, yeah. he was—he uh, apparently was ready to slug for. Her. He was so mad. Mm. Bitter. And this is some time later. I mean, this, you know, the uh, grievances uh, are not easily uh, dismissed. The same way uh, Diefenbaker never forgave Flora. Right. Uh, 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 she talked about Joe Clark, and, and she said of, of him that, that he was stubborn when crossed. Um, yeah. Did you ever talk to him about um, whether he agreed with that assessment, say? No, I haven't, uh, but he certainly didn't, hasn't objected to it, and I think he acknowledges, uh, uh, he realizes that he was, and, uh, and uh, uh, there was nothing uh, wrong, I suppose, with his budget in 1979, John Crosby's uh, budget as finance minister, uh, but uh, they didn't have to force it to a vote when they didn't have the, mem- the numbers to win the vote with the minority government. And, uh, and Joe Clark insisted they go ahead and have a vote anyway because he uh, said, well, if they defeat us, uh, we'll, we'll beat them in the election. You know, yeah. people, The people are finished with Trudeau. And, uh, and Joe Clark interpreted the 79 election as an endorsement of himself and the party. And, in fact, it wasn't. It was really just a repudiation of Trudeau and the liberals. And then we see what happened with the uh, 1980 election. Right, and Trudeau comes back with majority government. Um, so, in her time as, as uh, external affairs uh, minister, um, there, there's a lot that happens in those nine months that, that uh, Ooh, it, yeah. it's hard to believe. The, the Canadian caper, I guess, is is, is the big story there. Um, well, Vietnam, Vietnam is refugees as well. They, yeah, and that caper and. Uh, and also digging uh, the party out of the uh, commitment that Joe Clark had foolishly made in the election campaign to move the uh, Canadian embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem yeah. which caused no end of trouble and did not generate the support in the Jewish community, which they thought it would. Uh, and they had to get out of that one. And, uh, and uh, so Flora had uh, Bob Stanfield to go off and, uh, and do a tour. Uh, but the tour was a, uh, just a, uh, a charade, really. Uh, he... Uh, his instructions, and what he intended to do anyway, was to uh, recommend that they uh, abandon the promise to move the embassy, and that's what he came back and did. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he went around to a bunch of countries and talked to a bunch of people in the process, and then they came back and said what uh, he had been sent to find. He had found what he was sent out to find. Yeah. Um, you know, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking of you know, I, you know, the, the the Trump administration had had moved the, the their the American embassy to Jerusalem. At one yeah. point, and then, of course, the book opens with Afghanistan, and I've been reading it in the weeks after the events, the months after the events in Afghanistan in, in, in uh, this year. Um, I, I can't help but think um, or, or wonder what she would have thought of these things, say. Oh, uh, it was her greatest fear was that the Taliban would, uh, would take over again. And, 
and undo the progress that uh, that had been made to, to uh, introduce an element of democracy into Afghanistan and to uh, and to uh, establish uh, uh, women's rights, uh, women's rights to go to school, rights to uh, you know, run for elected office, uh, uh, rights to uh, uh, choose the profession that they wanted, all that kind of thing, which they couldn't do under the Taliban. And, uh, and she was very much af- afraid if the Taliban came back that uh, that would be undone, and that, in fact, is happening. I mean, the prob- Taliban has probably not been as draconian as she feared it would be, but it's been pretty bad, and I think she would be appalled right now, frankly, and uh, and she'd probably be there uh, fighting them and uh, and trying to uh, work continue to work with the women in Afghanistan uh, despite the Taliban, mm. would be my guess. Yeah. Um, uh, on the hostage crisis, um, her role in that, um, do you think that's been underplayed in history, say? Oh, I think so. I mean, history tends to uh, play up the Americans and, uh, and the CIA involvement. I mean, basically, it was, it was Ford when they got the phone call uh, uh, saying that uh, the, uh, the Canadian embassy uh, was sheltering these people, and what should they do? And, uh, and she went to Joe Clark, and they said, we keep them, and we look after them, and we get, we get them out. And that was the, the decision. And, and then Joe said, basically said to her, all right, that's your ball, you carry it. And she, she ran it from, from there uh, and tried to uh, uh, develop a rescue plan in Canada, but... Uh, and in the end, uh, we ended up working out one with uh, with the CIA, and uh, and they did get the uh, they did get the people out. And uh, it was interesting. Uh, afterwards, Jimmy Carter uh, came up to Canada. He was the president uh, mm-hmm. uh, at the time. He he lost his job uh, as president largely uh, because of the uh, because of the hostage crisis in Tehran. Yeah. He seemed incapable of, of saving the American uh, Americans who had been uh, taken hostage. Uh, but he came up. Uh, after the thing was over, to accept an honorary degree at, at Queen's University, and one of the conditions was that uh, that uh, Flora McDonald and Ken Taylor, the ambassador, both be there, and they wanted to see them, and so that he could, uh, you know, pay tribute uh, to uh, to the Canadians. And he made a speech about Canada, the great thing that Canada had done uh, to help the United States. It was really a, a sign of the closeness of the relationship between the two countries, and. Uh, and gave her a good recognition there. But, uh, that was uh, that was after the fact. But yeah, she uh, yeah. she but she got. I think she got good recognition in Canada. But I think abroad maybe it was seen more as an American uh, story than the yeah. one involving Canada. Not exploiting it uh, during the the 1980 federal election um, is something that, that that's talked about in the book. Do you think if they had, it might have changed the result of that election that year? Probably not. I mean, I think that uh, I think that the. Uh, Electors had decided that they made a mistake in '79 and, 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 and voting conservative rather than liberal, and uh, uh, that uh, they didn't like the Clark government for a number of reasons. But I, I, that might have made a small difference. But I don't. Uh, I, uh, the liberals were heading for a, a strong majority, and that's what they what they did get. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, yes, maybe it could have changed things around, but. Uh, 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 true. I mean, Trudeau was, was absolutely shocked when Joe Clark said he was not going to exploit uh, the issue. Mm-hmm. What? You know, why are they so stupid? They're playing into our hands. But uh, and uh, that may have been a mistake on Clark's part. But I don't know. I think uh, I have some respect for that. Okay, yeah. uh, it was a national crisis, and it was handled well. And uh, and uh, it, it it took the support of everybody in Parliament to to, to make it possible, and, and not. To, and not uh, leak out uh, prematurely, and the liberals uh, uh, did ask some uncomfortable questions. But uh, during that period, but uh, 
by and large, uh, Joe Clark was not going to claim it as a as a victory for his party, but really as a as a Canadian achievement. Yeah. So she talks in the book about the, the and, and you mentioned this already the the the, um, the grief I guess uh, after the defeat in 1976. Was there a, a, a same sort of grief after 1988 when she lost her seat in Kingston? Yeah, she was. Yeah, but not not as deep. I mean, she was. Uh, uh, she was obviously uh, discombobulated. It changed her life. She'd been a member of Parliament uh, uh, for 16 years, and uh, uh, but she was able to rationalize it and and, uh, and convince herself, and I think probably rightly, that it wasn't a personal uh, rejection of her, but uh, the government, uh, the Clark government, uh, the, the Mulroney government rather, had become quite unpopular among public servants. And there are an awful lot of public service in, in service in Kingston mm. uh, between the various universities and the military and uh, and the penal uh, institutions and so on. Yeah. Um, and uh, they uh, they were strongly uh, the late labor was at that time was against uh, against Mulroney and uh, and the labor feelings were strongest among those who actually worked for the government or for agencies of the government. And uh, she was not surprised that. Uh, that they had uh, voted uh, liberal. She didn't think she would lose her seat. But she said, well, I've been 16 years, and uh, maybe they're getting tired of me, too. And maybe they were. And uh, and uh, it was an opportunity. She changed her life and uh, and uh, came out of politics and went into humanitarian work. And next thing you know, she's off in Africa and Asia and, and ultimately Afghanistan. And, uh, for the next 20 years, uh, you know, a volunteer uh, uh, living rough with the, uh, with the local people. And uh, she said there were... You know, no more uh, five-star hotels for me. Uh, there were no hotels at all. I couldn't yeah. afford them. Uh, yeah. I, I stayed with the local people, ate with them, played with their children, and uh, and taught their wives how to read and write. Yeah, what what, what comes through as we read this book, uh, Jeff, is, is um, I can't think of a bit, uh, another term for this, but she really is a statesman, isn't she? Yes, I think so. I think that's, that's a very good word, Joe. Um, she's a statesman. Uh, uh, she's a leader. I mean, she uh, is a pioneer in various things, uh, uh, you know, as the only woman in the Conservative caucus, as the only female cabinet minister, the cover of the book is a picture of the Clark government being sworn in as a whole sea of men in dark suits and one woman in a white dress in the front row, and that was Laura. Yeah. She, she, she chose that dress, dress deliberately uh, to make a point uh, on that occasion. So she was a pioneer there, and, uh, and then uh, as foreign minister, uh, some of the things that she did uh, as foreign minister in that brief period, uh, in the Maloney cabinet, she introduced the Employment Equity Act, which required that anybody working for the federal government or any agency or company uh, under federal jurisdiction had to uh, had to provide equal opportunities for women, uh, indigenous uh, Canadians, handicapped uh, people, and so on. Um, and uh, it was really uh, uh, not earth-shattering, but it was sort of a landmark uh, legislation. And uh, I mean, it's there now, and it'll ne- it'll never be repealed. repealed. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever uh, given thought to writing a memoir of your own? No. Well, I, what would I say? I'm like Flora. Who would read it? Who would care? You know? <laughs> I, well, I, I doubt that, but um, I, I think um, perhaps if I can urge you to, to do so, I think you should. Um, the um, uh, the other thing is I was watching the, the Peter Raymond film, um, j- just the excitement of a leadership convention. I mean, you've covered a number of those. Um, do, do you um, think that, say, old style of a, a delegated convention, um, do, do you think that yielded better leaders for parties? You know, I'm thinking of, of the, 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 the more contemporary examples, you know, like Dion, Ignatieff, Scheer, and O'Toole, even Anna Paul, 
where you have well, these sort of Doug, one. Doug, Doug Ford, you could add. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What um, do you think? Um, it'll be hard to go back to them, but do you think they yielded better leaders? Say. I think so, um, and uh, there's more public exposure of the, of the candidates. Uh, basically, newer style leadership conventions. The, the, uh, it's it's all waged within the party. Uh, uh, sort of locked locked in. Uh, constituency associations and uh, you know, every association is worth the same amount and so on mm-hmm. uh, so you, what you do is you go out and campaign with the in the uh, in the associations with the fewest members because you get the same number of votes in the end if you get to capture the majority in that group that type of thing um, no I think uh, with the uh, with a brokered convention as they as they call them uh, uh, deals get made but they're based largely on, on public reaction uh, who uh, which among these candidates uh, in that campaign, which has probably gone on for a few months, has uh, been best received by the public, uh, which is uh, one has the best chance of winning an election and uh, is, is seen by, by the public, not just by the party insiders. And, uh, so I think, I think they're better, and I like them better, and they're a hell of a lot more, ex- more exciting, frankly, uh, the deals that are cut underneath the, the stands and that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah. uh, It's fun. It's dramatic. Uh, the Stanfield Convention in in '67 was uh, was the first of the big American style conventions, and it was, it was wonderful to cover. And followed next year by uh, you know Pierre Trudeau and the mm-hmm. Liberals, same sort of thing. And then the Bill Davis in Ontario, winning in the uh, cliffhanger to become uh, become premier. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's uh, it was, those were really exciting times. And as a journalist, they were wonderful to cover. I mean, it's a, I, uh, it's a, it's an era. It may be past. I would hope not permanently, but. Uh, it was great when it, while it lasted. Yeah. You mentioned having a flora button on your on your table there. Yeah. Um, I have the the um, I have a flora power button, and I have the one uh, with uh, her and McDonald, Sir John mm-hmm. A. I should say. Sir John A. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the campaigning in Kingston. Right. That had been Sir John A.'s riding uh, uh, when he was elected. Uh, he was the first prime minister, and he represented Kingston in the House of Commons. So you wrote a book with John Lassinger. Which uh, I, I mentioned to you in an email. Um, I just love because the, the, the buttons that um, are in the book are a marvelous guide for people like me who collect buttons. Um, whose buttons were those? Were those yours or John's? They're John's. John collected. John's a collector of buttons. And, I see. Uh, I had some, but not nothing like that number. In fact, the one that I have on my desk or a table right now is, uh-huh. uh, is one that is somebody who worked for Flora in the leadership camp and in, in the in her. Uh, uh, in her first election campaign in uh, in Kingston, uh, and then in her leadership campaign, uh, had had this button, and then he came around my house and, uh, and said, "Hey, you might like to have this. Maybe you put it on uh, when you're on television sometime." Yeah. Okay, you know why not? Yeah, um, it, it, it's such a marvelous book that uh, um, on um, leadership conventions that, that you and John wrote. But um, uh, as I said, I, I refer to it often and, and try to find the buttons in there that I don't have. <laughs> yeah, it's called leaders, leaders and Lesser Mortals. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things it has, which I still find useful, it's got the exact delegate count of every yeah. ballot and every leadership convention, federal and provincial, up to the time the book came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed reading this book and, and uh, getting the chance to talk to you. I've been a big fan over the years, and, and um, I really appreciate your time. I've kept you longer than I said I would. I could talk all day with you. Uh, well, con- I'm quite happy to talk. I mean, I, I, uh, I can't say that... Uh, I enjoyed writing the book all mm-hmm. the time. It was, uh, some of it was a bit of a struggle. And I must say, my, I guess my reaction right now is mainly relief. The book is out. Uh, people seem to like it. It's selling well, and uh, I'm happy.
It really is a life that we, that we as Canadians, and, and not just Canadians, obviously, but, but people should know about. That's right. Yeah. That's why I wanted to write it, and that's why I basically talked her into doing it. Yeah. Congratulations, Jeff, and, and all the best. Thank you, Joe, very much. The book is called Flora, A Woman in a Man's World. It is published by McGill-Queens University Press. One of its authors, Jeffrey Stevens, joined me on the line from Cambridge, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plutton.